she gave me a straw, she said, try it. And I went down, took my first line, and I felt absolutely amazing. And I absolutely loved it. With my girlfriend at the time, and then having sex, it was like the best feeling ever. And then it got to the point where it's just like, it's just so painful. I don't want to wake up anymore. And I just thought, if I had died, I'll no longer experience this pain. I'm not thinking about my daughter. I'm not thinking about my mum, my family, my friends. You know, he calls me dad and I truly look at him as my son. That's a miracle there that I could not see happening in a million years. Hello and welcome to 12 Steps and 12 Questions. My name is Silvio and I'm an addict. This pod is full of personal and inspirational stories of recovery from addiction. And in every episode, I'll ask each guest the same 12 questions about their life, addiction and recovery. Quick warning, there will be some graphic descriptions and a healthy amount of swearing. For this episode, please welcome Jason. Hey Jason, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I am so pleased that you're here and uh, for this new episode of 12 Steps and 12 Questions. I've uh, been wanting to interview you for a little while. I'm glad that we made it work. Yes, absolutely. Great stuff. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what's your name, when did you come into the rooms? And we can probably also just segue right into question one of our 12 questions, which is, did you have any adverse childhood experiences? So... Yeah, I'm from um, Collindale, from um, in northwest London, and um, yeah, just had a normal childhood. I personally believe, and I say it's normal just due to the fact that the people around me had similar experiences in regards to their childhood. Um, I think from the very first moment where I felt uncomfortable was in a classroom when um, books would go around for people to read and um, I always thought less of myself so I believe I was dyslexic but then again I'm not too sure Mm -hmm. but I was full of fear of reading and I remember the book would come round to me and I'd just be absolutely scared and I feel like um, as I try to attempt to read, I'll be stuttering. And I felt like everyone was looking at me, everyone was laughing at me, you know? Um, so that was like one of the first times that I realized I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, very shy as well, um, but not shy around family, but people that I don't know, you know? Um, and at the age of 13, um, my father, who I love dearly, he, he moved to Jamaica. Mm. And that really hurt, you know, that broke me because he was my hero, my rock. That's um, an adverse experience if ever there was one. Yeah, you know, but the reason why I didn't look at it as that, looking back in hindsight, was my friends that I hanged about with, their fathers weren't around as well. So it was normal? Yeah. Mm. It was kind of normal, you know. Of course, um, just because it's normal doesn't mean, or normal to you, doesn't mean that it isn't an adverse experience. Yeah, that's that's very mm. true. Mm. That's very true. Yeah, because if everybody around me, you know, I don't know, um, they get beaten up and whatever, you know, and, and they're not being looked after, you know, that to me is my normal. But that doesn't mean that it's not adverse, and doesn't mean that it's not painful for us. No, that's true. That's mm. true. Mm. You saying that as well? For example, I used to get beaten by my mum a lot. Mm. To me, that was normal because my friends used to get yeah. beaten by their mums. Yeah. You know, mm. um, my brother and sister as well used to get beaten, mm. you know. But then if you look at it today, like I don't hit my child. No. And that's the wrong thing to do. But yeah. back in those days, yeah. So. So some adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. But when your father left, were you told what was going on or did this sort of, or was this something that, you know, as a kid you weren't really allowed to ask? Um, so the thing is, is looking deeper into it, um, my father lived in Wembley, so he never lived with me. Um, and I think by the age of seven, my parents had split up. So I can't really remember them being together, you know. But I remember that day when my dad came to visit me and... Um, he said to me, oh, um, I'm moving to Jamaica and the plan is to 
go there for six months and come over here for six months, back and forth. Um, and I remember that as he left, I remember running into the bedroom and crying. Hmm. And I believe my little cousin, who I don't see no more for some weird reason, um, he was there, he might have been one or two, yeah. and he was wiping the tears from my eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then what actually happened was, like, my dad went over there for six months. He came back for six months with a new wife. And then when he left again, he didn't come back to the country. Yeah. How old were you then? To be honest with you, I can't actually remember, but I think I was around 13. Yeah. I think I was around 13. I can't, I cannot remember. I guess from then, throughout my life, um, there was always this resentment against my father. And I believe that the way how I turned out is number one because of him. And that's mm. because he wasn't around how to show me to be a man. And I guess number two, I never had no one to look up to. Mm -hmm. Um. This is a really interesting topic that I probably belongs into an entirely different podcast and not this one. Yeah. But that is what happens when, as a man, you don't have a man teaching you what it, how to behave, yeah. right? Which I believe also is not something that a mother can teach you. It's not something, you know, can be taught female to male. I think that, you know, us men, we have to look after our boys and, and pass that on. Yeah. Oh, very true. But the thing is, I've I've got it in my head that, you know, there's certain people that go through that and they still turn out okay, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. Maybe that's something I need to look at in the future. Mm -hmm. Sort of brings us a little bit to question two, which is, what did the moment you first got hooked and the fun times, what did that look like? Um, see, as a child, I was never really allowed out. So my friends that I spoke about, they were always out. And I wasn't allowed out until maybe the age of 14. Allowed out of the house? Yeah. Allowed out of the house to, like, play. Like, my mum was very strict. So from around the ages of 14, 15, when it was like, okay, you can go out now, I absolutely loved it. And then from the ages of, 16, started going out raving, had a lot of fun, but we was drinking water. We used to go to the bar, because we never had no money. We used to go to the bar and ask for a glass of water with ice, and that's that's how we survived in the rave. Um, used to go raving in Tottenham. And then as we started to work and go out, started to drink. And I absolutely loved the effect produced by alcohol. Um, I think the first drinks we used to drink was like Diamond White. What, what is that? It's a cider. Okay. Yeah, it's a cider. And um, I remember just having like two bottles of cider in my hand in a rave. And when I drank, it just made me feel comfortable in my own skin. You know, I could dance. Um, when I raved, I could speak to the opposite of sex. I was just full of confidence. Mm. But the other thing as well, I was just remembering like, I always had to have a drink in my hand mm. and it made me feel safe. And those were the fun times for what I believe. Um, chasing different women, having jokes with your friends. You know, I thought that's what life was all about. Now, we know each other from Cocaine Anonymous. Yeah. So at some point, you progressed, clearly. Yeah. And it took me a long while to progress because, um, you know, I've always worked throughout my life, but there was moments that I used to sell um, drugs. So maybe from the ages of 19 up until 25, I always used to sell weed. Mm -hmm. But I always disliked weed. The first 
experience I had with weed was um, pretending to smoke it to look cool. Um, at, I don't know, I was around 14 and then my brother gave me, um, gave me, gave me a spliff and he said it was chili and skunk. Um, I ain't got a clue what that is. And I remember I never used to be able to roll up, but I could roll up with licorice paper because they were a bit harder. Mm. So I remember rolling it up and taken a pull in my garden. And I absolutely, like, this was the first time I actually inhaled it. Mm. And I felt, and I was like, oh, wow, I feel high. And then the next minute, I got absolutely paranoid. Um, so I disliked weed from that. And I always looked down on Class A drugs. Like, that's a no-no. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, always sold weed um, from those ages, but I would never, never take it or once in a blue moon, but always disliked it. Just loved alcohol. Um, Was your drinking problematic back then, back then already? So, no, I, I don't know. I look at it as I was just having fun, you know. I think there were certain times I might have had a little blackout here and there, but then... Um, when my friends came to me the, the following day or whatever, and they would say, oh, you know, you're doing some crazy stuff. Those things could laugh about, do you know what I mean? Um, but what, what, what happened is, is um, you know, those were the fun times. But what happened was around the age of 26, um, I was with my daughter's mum. We were together for a couple of years and then she fell pregnant. And I remember saying to myself, like, I'm always going to be there for this child when this child comes. And my daughter was born. Mm. And, you know, it was like the happiest day of my life. And I said, I'm always going to be there for her. You know, because my father wasn't there for me. Right. And I, I knew the effect it had on me. So I just wanted to be a proper father for my daughter. But um, when she was one years old, me and her mum weren't getting along and... Um, I basically walked out of that relationship. And also on her then, obviously. Yes, mm. yes. But, you know, I was committed to having her every fortnight, every weekend, every fortnight, because I needed weekends to go out. Um, but what happened was, was when we broke up, I just thought to myself, is this all life has to offer? And... It's like this hole in my soul that just needed to be filled. And the only way I knew how to fill that was by going out, drinking, enjoying mm. myself. And once again, it was fun. But maybe a year later after that, I met this um, this girl who was my girlfriend at the time. And, you know, I was, I was like 28. She was like nine years younger than me. Um... I'm just gonna go real deep, man. I mean, mm. she was like nine years younger than me, and I think I was having a midlife crisis. She said she was a, a, a stripper, and I was just amazed by that. And I thought, now I'm really gonna have some fun. Mm. And she always spoke about how um, she had a line or two of cocaine on the weekend when she's gone out with her friend. And it was at that point that I was just like, I wonder what this cocaine is like. You know, previously thinking no to drugs. Mm. Then I started obsessing about doing it. Before you even haven't tried, even tried before it? Before I had even tried it. You know, a couple of years before that, like I said, I, I always kind of worked nine to five, but I sell drugs on the side. And I remember when... When my ex was pregnant, I thought, let me start selling cocaine to make some money. Right. But I was actually making money. Not much money, but I was mm. making money. And that's due to the fact that I wasn't touching it. But, yeah, around that time with my, my current girlfriend, I remember looking in this magazine and there was these two women in there dressed very sexy and they either had, I think they had a note in their hand 
and the article was about cocaine. Mm. And I just, I just loved that picture. Mm. And then that's when I started obsessing about what is this thing like? It's like a promise, really, that yeah. picture, isn't it? Yeah. You know, good time. Yeah. Nice girls, pretty girls. Absolutely. What's not to like? Yeah. Mm. You know, um, my girlfriend at the time, it was her birthday and I was drinking. She was drinking. I said to her, do you know what? I want to try this cocaine for the this this cocaine for the first time. And I remember her saying, are you sure? I was like, yeah. And she, I remember her running. We was in the living room. And I remember her running into the bedroom and running back in. And she put this white powder out on the table. And she wrapped up a line. And she gave me a straw. She said, try it. Mm. And I went down. I took my first line. And I felt absolutely amazing. Mm. And I thought to myself, why did I take so long to try cocaine? Mm. And I absolutely loved it. And from then, having my first line, and continuing to do more lines with my girlfriend at the time and then having sex. Mm. It was like the best feeling ever. Mm. Although certain things weren't working, it was the best feeling ever. <laughs> That's just my, like my experience <laughs> as well. And isn't that weird that we'd still think it'd be a nice experience, although you're not really functioning? Yeah, yeah. But... um yeah, just all the problems in the world. Yeah. You know, it just all vanished. All the problems, all the responsibilities, everything, it just absolutely vanished. Mm. And I just wanted to do it again and again and again and again. And the funniest thing is the first time that I did do it, um, a few hours had went past. I don't know, it might have been like four in the morning, I'm not sure. My girlfriend at the time said to me, um, I need to stop because I need to go see my father in a couple hours' time. So I guess it must have been three to the morning. And in my head I was just thinking to myself, why the hell would you ever want to stop doing this, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And that was my first experience. Yeah. What were your worst consequences? And finally, you were rock bottom. So you were taking cocaine. You, for a while, you thought, hmm, I'm not going to try it. But then you did try it, and you thought it was the greatest thing yeah. in sliced bread. So, you know what? A couple of months had went by after um, using cocaine. And what would happen is, is that I would go to work, come back home, have a shower, jump in my car, drive to my girlfriend's, and wait for her to pull out the cocaine. Um, and that was just kind of frustrating for me. So because I've previously selling it before, I thought to myself, why don't I start selling it? You know, and I can make some money. Because as a matter of fact, I was pretty much in debt from then. Mm. Not as much debt, but due to the fact of, I remember I went on a holiday and went raving, I spent... I spent all my money on, on a credit card. Um, so I thought, yeah, it'd be a good idea to make some money. Um, to then find out as well, um, my girlfriend wasn't um, a strip dancer. She was actually an escort. Right. Um, How did you take that? So, do you know, at the time she was living with a friend and um, her friend was seeing this this guy and this guy was also friends with my girlfriend and long story short there was basically a time when um, I realised that they didn't like him for certain reason for a certain reason but then he was still able to come back to the house I was just like what's going on there yeah so then basically find out that he was blackmailing them and then he eventually called me and said these two girls are not strippers, they're actually escorts. And he sent me a website and I saw the picture. Were you shocked? I was shocked, number one. 
Number two, I really had no clue. But number three, I was aroused by it. Right. And I thought I loved this girl at the time. But I didn't love her. I actually loved the cocaine and the fun that I was having. There was no stress at all when I'd go there. You know, I was just drinking drugs and partying. Um, Not a real relationship in that sense then? It wasn't a real relationship, no. You know, none of my friends or family had met her. And like, we were seeing each other for around a couple of years then. Um, it was just a place that I can go and escape and enjoy myself. Mm. So, you know, after that, um, around those times I was selling drugs and I never really had no customers. She had all the customers and I just thought they were friends. So, but they weren't friends. They, no. they, they were mainly clients. And that's when I put two and two together. Like, you could go and visit paid-for female companionship yeah, and use drugs as well. So now that's in my head and I'm like, what kind of experience would that be? Mm. So then as she owned up to it and telling me um, her past, all of this information is in my head and I'm thinking, will I be able to do that? which is quite dark. Um, and it got to the point where our relationship got a bit toxic. There was arguments mm. happening, so on and so forth. And I think that was just due to the fact of, I know who she really is now, you know? Um, and then I started cheating. And the stuff that she was talking about, I ventured out and done it myself. Mm. And I remember the first time I'd done it, um, I was there for like an hour, absolutely loved it, second and third time. So this is, you'd go and you'd see an escort. Yeah. You'd do cocaine with her. Yeah. And you might get it on a bit with them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Mm. This is huge. Um, this is a, a huge factor, I think, for... In, in cocaine addiction, isn't it really the fact that it makes you, it turns you on, it can be a turn on, Absolutely. you know, and, and, and then obviously paid for companionship, as you put yeah. it, you know, is, is, is available. Yeah. And I know quite a lot of people who, for whom that combination was a real factor in their addiction. Yeah. Mm. Not many people talk about it. I can understand, you know, mm. people have wives and stuff and you know maybe that's a conversation between two people you know but um yeah i have to share about my past because that's what that's what it was you know mm. so things started going downhill due to the fact of um not only am i constantly using cocaine and spending more money on it yeah i'm also constantly at places that i shouldn't be yeah and it started from an hour to two hours. And then it went up to like seven hours. So I'm spending a lot of money. Crazy money, surely. Yeah. Going into more debt. Owing drug dealers money as well. Mm. Because, you know, I'm ticking off of them to then sell it on to pay them back. And I'm just sniffing it all and spending my paid my my money that I received from work in these places. For those of us who may not have engaged with escorts and all the rest of it, can you put a number on this? If you're going to see someone for like two or three hours? Say roughly it could be a hundred pounds an hour. Mm. You know. Right. Plus the cocaine that sets you back. Yeah. And that can accumulate really quickly. It does. And the thing is as well is like you don't want to find one where she isn't giving you this girlfriend experience. Right, yeah, yeah. This party, this fantasy that you have in your head because you just won't enjoy it all. Mm. And you do come across that. And if you do, you might spend a hundred pounds 
but then you'll go off to find another one, to find another experience. So it's not just a sexual experience, it's also an emotional experience, a loving experience that you look for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, it's just this weird fantasy where you just want to, you just want to experience something that you're not experiencing on a daily basis with no complications whatsoever, you know? Um, and, it, and, and it's, and it's based upon the person that you're with, you know, if there's any slight mood change that they're not happy, I personally will get paranoid and then it will just, just destroy the whole um, experience of it. Mm. Where would you find these uh, escorts? Online? Online, mm. yeah, online, you know, and, you know, that's the hard work as well, it's like going online and trying to find the right one, you know. You may look for the girlfriend experience and that mm. might cost a bit more money. Thing is, though, either way you lose. So you might find one with the girlfriend experience and it's, that's a bit more money. You end up spending all of your money. Yeah. Or you might find one that's not the girlfriend experience and you don't carry on and then you go find another one. Mm. What I'm trying to say is either way, whichever way I've done it, I would always wake up to the four horsemen, which I call terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Yeah. It's real darkness, you know, um, and a lot of guilt, shame, and remorse as well in regards mm. to certain things that I had done. Mm. So there were, in that time, there were moments of clarity there where you kind of go, what is it I'm actually doing? This isn't normal. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, yeah. Mm. But the problem for me is, couldn't understand this. I would forget. And I'll have this euphoric recall of that particular day, that particular night, sorry, with that person, how amazing it was. And I'll forget about the ending. And I'll chase that again. And I would experience the ending again. And I'll think to myself, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. And that would happen time and time and time again. So you were stuck in that loop when you were getting some awareness that you were stuck in this loop. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's an experience that we all make in one way or another. I mean, everybody's got their own version of it. But yeah. It was very, very similar for me in that I would only ever recall the good times, you know, the fun I had at parties and when there were people around and we'd be, you know, sitting around to the early morning hours talking bollocks, everybody getting on really well and, and, and that sort of thing. And then not remember that at some point the bewilderment would set in like, why well, am I actually sitting here with these people? Yeah. And who are they? And this is all just fake. And then the come down and then just feeling so awful. Yeah. Just gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching stuff. And that would last for, I don't know how long. And then I'd swear, fucking hell, man, I'm not doing that again. And then just a day later, I'm kind of thinking, well, there's another party coming up on Friday, yeah. So, well, it's Wednesday, made a, better get some today just to make sure that I've got some on Friday. Do what I just want, what I just bought for the Friday. Do that on the Wednesday. Yeah. Go through the same shit again on the Thursday and then on Friday still go out and use and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. it's sim so similar, Absolutely. that loop. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, consequences were, you know, um, as a result of doing this stuff, um, I'm having problems with my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Um, I'm having problems at work. I'm going to work late. I'm not showing up at all. I'm using my daughter as an excuse. My daughter's six, so therefore um, I'm not coming into work. And the real fact is, is that this daughter that I said I'm always going to be around, mm. I wasn't around for her. So basically turned into my father, but worse. Because oh. not only am I in the same country, I'm literally in the same area as her, and I'm not seeing her at all. So me and her mum wasn't getting along. There were many times that I had been blocked, and, you know, I thought she was the problem, my daughter's mum. Mm. But then to realise it was me. 
If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. Um, in massive debt, feeling guilt, shame and remorse. Mm. Very depressed. This kind of brings us to question four in many ways, which is, did you ever want to die? Did you consider suicide? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. You know, the the pain that I was in, it was just like, first of all, it was just like, I'm going to go to sleep and not wake up. But I'd wake up. You know, after a massive bender, I used to like, because I wouldn't eat for days when using, when it was all finally over, and I felt that massive come down, I could order like two pizzas and just eat them all at once. And I'd binge eat as well, totally. Yeah. And, you know, I thought in my head, that would make me go to sleep finally. And if I go to sleep, I ain't even thinking about waking up. I'll be all right. And then I wake up. It's like, damn, I have to do all this again. E. And then it got to the point where it's just like, it's just so painful. I don't want to wake up anymore. Yeah. And I just thought, if I had died, I'll no longer experience this pain and everything would be fine. Mm. I'm not I'm not thinking about my daughter. I'm not thinking about my mum, my family, my friends. You know, selfish to the core. It's always me, me, me. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the last time that I drank and used was on the 31st of May, 2018. Now, prior to this, I was depressed. So I thought, let me go to the doctors. Perhaps they can sort me out. Um, and the doctor asked me questions like, oh, do you do drugs or do you drink alcohol? I didn't even know that I was lying at the time, but I was like, I only do a couple of lines of cocaine on a weekend, or I only have a couple of pints of lager on the weekend. Absolutely lying, and I remember them um, giving me antidepressants, and I thought to myself, you know, if I take these antidepressants, I really thought this, I can remember it clearly. If I take it, will this stop me from doing these disgusting behaviours? Because at, at, at that, you know, there had been a long time where I wanted to stop doing that, and I couldn't stop. Would this stop me from using cocaine? And as I took those pills, it didn't give me that psychic change that I was yearning for, you know? So the 31st of June, 2000, sorry, there was other things as well. Like I had reduced my bank card to like 50 pounds a day because, you know, if I ever get this thought to go and do what I do, and I've, I realise when I get these thoughts, I go ahead and do it. I can't stop myself from doing it. Um, so, yeah. You try to moderate. You try to control. Absolutely. Did you try, which is our next question, did you try any other methods to get sober, perhaps away from moderating, but to get sober before you came to the rooms? No. Mm. And you, you say sober like... Never once it occurred to me that I was an alcoholic, which I was. Mm. Drinking was never a problem. It just got to the point where it was just cocaine that was a problem. And how I tried to stop doing that was, first of all, s stop selling cocaine. Number one, breaking up with um, the girlfriend who introduced me to it. Number two, none of that works. I still use cocaine. Um, then it was like, Anyone that I know that does cocaine and all of the dealers are going to delete their phone numbers out of my phone. And what would happen was I would go online and get their number and call them. So that didn't work. There was even times that I would go to these places that I went for for female, paid female companionship. And I'd be asking them if they can get cocaine. <laughs> um... Also reduce, like I say, reducing my cash card to £50 a day. Um, that didn't work. So, yeah, I tried to stop and I couldn't stop. 
And the worst thing that happened to me was after deleting all of these people's phone numbers and so on and so forth, there's this girl that I knew around my area. And November 2017, I remember I was going out and I heard that she sold coke. And all I asked her for was, could you give me 20 pounds worth? And at that particular time, I had stopped doing it because, you know, I'd only do it now and again kind of thing. Um, but I was always drinking. Mm. And I remember she she um, sold me 20 pounds worth, which is 0 0.2. And I loved it again. Mm. But that had to set off something else. The following week, I bought more. The following week, I bought more and more and more. So you had distanced yourself from it a bit. You were able to leave it alone yeah. for a little while, but you couldn't stay stopped. Yeah. And once you tried it again, it still felt that whole, yeah. and you were still in love with it, Absolutely. and you were off to the races again. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, the, there's this saying, like, a man cutting off his legs and then expecting them to grow again. That's what I thought. I thought, because I stopped it for a little while, maybe I could do it again and control and moderate, and that wasn't the case whatsoever. You were talking about the last time you drank and used. Yeah. So the last time I drank and used, 31st of May, 2018. It was a bank holiday, I remember leaving work, going to my uncle's house to speak about my father who um, had problems and he was actually coming back to the UK for, um, for medical treatment. And we were talking and um, I was drinking there and it was about two in the morning and I remember thinking, I'm gonna get some gear and meet up with this girl that I had met last month. So the month prior to that, I met some girl and, you know, we was having fun using cocaine as well. So that's what I thought I'd do. So I remember like three in the morning, remember calling my dealer, wanting 300 pounds worth. And I remember receiving it, going home, doing the line, and calling this girl to say, um, I've got it, I'm gonna come over. I'm gonna get a cab and come over. And she didn't answer. She didn't answer. And I was grateful she didn't answer now, but at that time I was pissed off. And I just done what I knew best because for me, once I had one line, I get all of these feelings and stuff, you know. Um, and that's what I done. I, I um, <laughs> yeah, I went to this. I went to this place to see a woman. I'm actually going to dive into this. Funny enough, I went to this place to see a woman. I was there for a couple of hours, and I wasn't allowed to use cocaine in there. In there, and that was a terrible experience. Knowing that it was in my pocket and I couldn't do it. Two hours went past. It must have been the morning now, and I wanted to go find another place, and I found another place, and I used it again, and this. Went on until Saturday night. I remember Saturday night, wasn't doing my last line. I was smoking a cocaine spliff. And I thought, this has to stop. I can't deal with this anymore. Mm. And I had two options. And the two options were to kill myself, like I said before, so that I'll no longer experience this and I'll be free. Or the second option was to get vulnerable and ask for help. Yeah. And although I thought it was a sign of weakness, oh, that was a sign of strength. Mm. And from that action, that's when that freedom came. Mm. Asking for help. Who did you ask? There used to be this website. There used to, sorry, there used to be this advert called Talk to Frank. Talk to Frank, yeah. If you have a drink or drug problem and <laughs> uh, me and my friends used to take the piss out of it in the 90s but yeah 31st June 2018 they didn't actually talk to anyone but I went onto their website and I saw similar stories to mine not being able to pay rent being in massive debt not wanting to use cocaine and still using it 
This is where the courage came from. Like it directed me to this drug and alcohol abuse center in in the Edgware Hospital, and I remember going there the day after, and I used to, had to fill out these forms, and then I had an appointment with this counselor, and we had a one to one, and um, she said to me, "So what's the problem?" I said, "Listen, I I'm gonna stop doing cocaine." So okay, how about um, alcohol? I never thought alcohol was a problem at this time. I was like, oh, I want to control my alcohol drinking. <laughs> yeah, that's that is what I wanted as well. Actually, yeah. When I when I decided that no good could ever come of using cocaine, yeah. And I said, it's it's over. It's just over. Yeah. But I could not, for the life of me, consider a life without drinking at all. So yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted, exactly that. Yeah. Mm. At that present moment in time, I didn't see no problems at all with alcohol. Alcohol was fine, mm. you know. Um, you know, she said to me, could you commit for one hour per week for 12 weeks? And I said to her, I can't, you know, because this is in Northwest London. I work in South London. In my head, I'm thinking, what am I going to tell work? I can't tell, I, can't, I don't know what excuse I'm going to tell them why I'm not here for three hours, you know. And... My relationship with work wasn't too great anyway. Um, and she said to me, could you pay for it? I'm like, listen, I'm in absolute debt. I can't pay for it. And she said to me, you could go and pay for this female companionship and cocaine, but you can't pay for this. And in my head, I thought, how dare you say that? But then also in my head was, I don't want to be doing these things anymore. I don't know what's going on. I do not want to be doing these things anymore, but I can't stop myself from doing it. And then she said to me, have you heard of Cocaine Anonymous? I said, no, but I'll give it a try. I actually lied. There was a time when I heard of Cocaine Anonymous. There was a girl um, that I was speaking to when I was in the madness, when I never knew I had a problem. And she mentioned Cocaine Anonymous and how she goes to meetings because she used to smoke crack. And I tell you what, that conversation went in one ear and out the other. But yeah, going back to that now, I remember leaving that place, walking home, thinking to myself, I've gone this far, let me even go further. And I went on to the CA helpline and I called, I called up the helpline. Mm. Spoke to this lovely woman and she told me there's a meeting on a Friday in Covent Gardens, you should give that a go. And somehow I had this courage to go to my very first meeting. Mm. And I remember like, where the building is, there's like this little alleyway. Mm. I remember looking down at it and thinking, what the hell am I in for? I don't know what's happening there. I remember walking towards the um, building and there was a guy there smiling. Mm. And he said to me, is this your first time? And I said, yeah. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, everything's going to be all right. Go get yourself a cup of tea, sit down and just listen. Hmm. I was so scared, crying as well. But that's one of the best things I've ever done for myself. Hmm. Brings me to the next question, question six. Did you struggle with the word God when you came into the rooms? I didn't struggle with the word God. I've had experience in regards to God or hearing God from like going to church. Um, I was a born again Christian at the age of 17. I mean, that lasted a couple of months. Um, and I always heard the word God. I knew there was a God, but I was kind of agnostic. It never even came into my, my mind that mm. God would work for me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I wasn't scared of it. Mm. You know, there's... Um, the scrolls of the meeting, 12 steps of cocaine anonymous, mm -hmm. 12 steps, 12 traditions as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. When I was new in, I never once looked at them, but I did see the word God on there and it didn't scare me at all. No. Question seven. Today, how do you experience your higher power? Can you put that into, into words? Yeah, so... Do we phrase that question? Yeah, so 
if I think about my own experience, I did struggle with the word God quite a bit. And um, so I had a long way to go with that, right? And today, I experience my higher power, which I don't really call God a lot. Sometimes I do, but I often call it the universe or mystery because I will never really understand it. But I see it working in my life. I experience it working in my life just by the sheer fact that every time I feel calm about in a situation I usually wouldn't feel calm about, by the sheer fact that I'm not drinking and using, and even when there's difficulty, I don't want to drink and use. I'll tell you the first time I experienced God. Mm -hmm. So from that very first meeting I went to, which was on a Friday, I went back there the following Friday, spoke to some people, and they were telling me to go to different meetings and to find myself a sponsor. And I went to different meetings, and eventually, a couple of weeks later, I found myself a sponsor. And my sponsor gave me certain suggestions there. For example, praying on my knees in the morning and praying on my knees at night. And I asked my sponsor, um, what should I pray about? And he said to me, in the morning, ask God for a clean and sober day. And at night, thank God for a clean and sober day. So I started to do that. The following Friday, after finding myself a sponsor, I went to the meeting on a Friday again, and I left there. But I had a date with this girl that I knew in the past. And we went on a date, we went out for something to eat. And you know, in my head it was like, she's gonna be okay, because I know she doesn't drink. And she doesn't do any drugs, you know, so I'll be safe. Um, and then one thing led to another um, after we went out for a meal. And we was trying to, like, find somewhere to go, like a hotel. And we couldn't find any at the time. It was Friday night. And we ended up going to a car and we were kissing. And at that point, this thought that outweighs any other thought, mm. which I've experienced before, which is the obsession, but I didn't know what the obsession was at the time. But this thought that outweighed any other thought came into my head and was like, you need to get cocaine. Yeah. You need to go and go to those places that you've went to in the past. And I remember saying to this girl, listen, um, I feel very tired. Could you drop me home? So she dropped me home. I live with my brother and my mum. And at the time, my brother was, was, was in. And I got in, I spoke to my brother for like a minute, carrying on like everything was okay. But I had this thought in my head and I wanted to do it. And I went upstairs and I tried to get my dealer to deliver me a ticket. But I deleted my dealer's phone number, um, but she was on Facebook. But I had blocked her. So I unblocked her and sent her a message. Luckily for me, 24 hours has to go by before a message has been received. Ah, but I didn't stop there. I started calling those places that I spoke about, saying to them, listen, I'll come round if you've got cocaine. Mm. And in my head, it was just like, I don't want to do this. Mm. And then I started thinking, oh, they said if this happens, that I should call someone. But I didn't want to call no one. But I remember my sponsor saying, at night time, get down on your knees and thank God for a clean and sober day. And I got down on my knees and I said that. And I might have asked God that I don't want to do this. Mm. And then I done that. And then afterwards, I continued to try and get cocaine. And you know what happened? I ended up falling asleep. And it never felt like it at the time, but looking back, I looked at that as a spiritual experience and God done for me what I couldn't do for myself. Yeah. And I've had many experiences after that, but that was my very first mm. experience that there was a power greater than myself. Question eight, which part of the steps were the most difficult for you? You know, the funniest thing, as I went through the steps, I personally didn't know what I was doing. 
let's say step one and two was me reading the book from my sponsor and him explaining stuff to me. I don't know if I retained the information. Um, step three, I got down on my knees and I prayed with my sponsor and done a step three prayer. Step four, as I'm saying this, now I'm realizing what it was. <laughs> step four, I had to write out my resentments, fears, and sexual inventory. I was given two weeks to do that. My sponsor said, do it in two weeks. And he also said to me, tell me your deepest, darkest secrets that you'll take to your grave. And when he said that, I said, oh, let me tell you now what I'd done. And I told him. Two weeks had gone by, I'd done all of it as suggested, went to my sponsor's house, and I basically shared everything with him. All my resentments, all my fears, all my sexual inventory. It was a long session. I can't remember how long it was. You really is. Yeah. He said to me, listen, I'm going to leave you in my house for an hour. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I don't normally swear, but I did swear. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? So listen, I'm going to leave you in my house for an hour. You can pray or meditate, do whatever. And I was baffled. And it was like, why would you want to leave me in your house? You don't really know me that well as well. You just want to leave me in your house by, by myself. And as he walked out of the house, something magical happened. All of these deep, dark secrets that I had buried, mm. and I didn't know that I had buried, came up into my head. And I was like, shit. And I was full of guilt, shame, and remorse of the stuff that came into my head. And I said, what am I going to do? And then I said to myself, do you know what? At the start of this relationship with my sponsor, I said to him that I'm going to go to any lengths. And that's what I'd done. All of those secrets I wrote, it was very hard, but I wrote them down on a piece of paper. And he came back an hour later and I shared it with him. Mm. So this is step five. And I remember him, <laughs> I remember him putting his hand on my shoulder saying, everything's going to be all right. Mm. So many times I hear in the rooms like, um, I shared my step five with my sponsor. My sponsor said, oh yeah, I've done that as well. Well, my sponsor said, yeah, I haven't done that. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, I was filled with guilt, shame and remorse. And yeah. um, I remember walking home and I called a friend in the fellowship and um, I said to him, oh, I feel real bad, like I've just shared some dark stuff. And he said to me, when you get home, that piece of paper that you've written on, just burn it. This was a Friday night and I remember burning it. And then the next day, I was in Primrose Hill. It was sunny, I was in a park by myself reading the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, this was another experience of God for me personally. Although I was alone, I never felt alone. And then that was another experience, mm. you know. And what I realized today is, you know, that's that step five, sharing it with another human being and God. Mm. You know, I do nightly reviews and there's a question that says, is there anything you should discuss with another human being? Mm -hmm. That's like a step five question mm -hmm. again. And I always find this hard. Mm -hmm. And it's just with mistakes that I've done that carries guilt, shame and remorse, even though I'm five years clean and sober. But the thing is, is that with the guilt, shame and remorse, when you keep it a secret, it grows and it manifests. But when you share it with someone else, someone that's earned the right to share it with, where you experience trust with them, yeah, that, that guilt, shame and remorse, it can't grow, mm. it can't survive, you know? And each time, although it's hard, I learn it's the best thing to do. You know, secrets keep you sick. Mm. You say you're five years now? Yes. Well done on your clean Thank time. Thank you. Um, now, question nine, I think is always very interesting for people who've been around the room for a little while and we all struggle with them in one way or another. Which character defects give you most trouble? 
Ooh, I'm going to go with self-pity. Wow. And I'll tell you why self-pity. This year for me has been like the hardest year. Started off with moving homes. Live with my brother and my mother and we've always pretty much lived in the same place. And we had to move homes because they're um, knocking down, demolishing the houses and rebuilding them into flats. And that was the worst experience, not the worst experience of my life, but worst experience in recovery. I didn't know how stressful it was mm-hmm. moving homes. Um, and then as soon as we moved homes, my mum started suffering with dementia. And that was real painful, seeing this woman who's always been there for me now not being able to be independent and just how everything just changed. And you know what? It was like, poor me, poor me, poor me. How about me, Mm. you know? Mm. Until I started getting acceptance and I seen that she's sick and it's just like, you know, what can I do for her? Then, you know, um, you know, COVID happened and I was made redundant. I was out of work for six months and then, I, long story short, I found this new job. And although the job was nice, it wasn't paying as much as I wanted it to pay. So I went for a new job. Unfortunately, the new job I went for, I didn't last two months and I lost the job. Mm-hmm. And I was out of work for two months. And again, it was like, or me, why me? Mm. Do you know what I mean? The first time I've taken a chance and I've failed, although that wasn't the case, because two months later I found a new job and I'm there now and I'm loving it. Then I broke up. My girlfriend broke up with me mm. about three months ago. And once again, mm. poor me, what's everyone going to think? What's everyone going to say? My pride, my self-esteem has been really affected. People are going to feel like I've got a rubbish program. People are going to be like, look at him. You know, he can't hold down a relationship. It got really painful when I was in my room, not talking to no one, just thinking about how my life has gone downhill. And you know what? That is somewhere that I cannot be, you know? On a daily basis, I ask for my defects of, char- of character to be removed. Yeah. Um, but there's certain times I need to be specific and ask God to remove them. And they may not remove straight away, but I will get an answer. Mm. And you know what the answer for me was at that particular time, it stemmed from a conversation with my sponsor and other people as well. They're like, when you're going through something, you need to up your game more. You can't just be doing the standard things that you're doing. I didn't listen and I felt the pain. So it's like, what am I going to do now? And what I started to do was go to more meetings, but not to just go to meetings and to hear a message. What can I bring to that meeting? Mm. And this is what I can bring to that meeting. I could look for newcomers. I could get their phone numbers. I could call them on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, the, the thing with calling people, some are going to be like, why is this guy calling me? Mm. Whereas some are going to be like, I really appreciate you calling me, checking in on me to see how I am. Well, it's worth mentioning, I think, at this point that when I was, I think about two months in or maybe two and a half months in, something like that, and I was very low. I was in the middle of my steps. I was feeling very, very low. I know it wasn't a good day at all. And you called just mm. at the right time, not because you knew about this or anything like that. And I know we have discussed this, uh, you and I privately, but you called just at the right time. And I'm not even sure exactly what you said or what we discussed. I just probably just said, look, I'm feeling really low. And you probably just said, yeah, I had some experiences when I came in, something along that, along those lines and that connection. And, and it got me out of a tight spot on that day. I don't know if I'd have drunk or used, maybe, maybe not, but it really helped. It really helped me. And it was one of those key moments in my recovery, you know. So, um, one, thank you for that. But this also just goes to prove that what you're doing, you know, it, it doesn't fall on deaf ears. It really does make a difference. Absolutely. You know, and thank you for thanking me. But 
just know that I've thanked someone before that done it for me. Cool. And that's how all that's how this this works, you know. Yeah. A wise man once told me, I have to say this, you know, someone can hide behind a text, but they can't hide behind a phone call. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that is true. Absolutely. Yeah. Much more connection than a phone call. Absolutely. Question 10. What is the best thing recovery has given you? One of the best things is a few things that connect together. It's allowed me to be there for my, my daughter, which has also allowed me to be resentment-free from her. I had a resentment for my daughter for calling another man dad. You know, as a result of step four, um, I was able to see the truth. I walked out of my daughter's life and this man came into my daughter's life and brought her up to be the beautiful girl that she is today. Mm. Um, and for some reason, that man that my daughter calls dad is no longer around at this present moment in time. And he's left um, my daughter, his daughter, sorry, he's left behind my daughter and his daughter. Yes, yes. Same person. Yeah, yeah, of course. And also his son, my daughter's younger brother. Um, and because of recovery, I was able to go to my daughter's mum and say, listen, if there's anything you need from me, just please let me know. And she said to me, when you have your daughter, can you have my son as well? And mm -hmm. I said, it'll be an absolute pleasure. Um, and that's what happens now. So you gained a son? Yeah. Out of nowhere? Yeah. Seemingly? Yeah. That's beautiful. And, you know, he calls me dad and I truly look at him as my son. And that's that's... That's a miracle there that I could not see happening in a million years. Didn't even expect anything like that. Miracle indeed. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. What would you say to a newcomer or someone wondering if they're an addict? That's a good question. I mean, I would be asking questions like, have there been times where you don't want to do it, but you do it? Mm. You know, what happens when you take the first line or first drink? Mm. You know, can you just take one and then leave it alone, or do you continue to do it again and again and again? You know, what's your experience of certain times that you drank and used? I remember speaking to someone and they said to me, "I don't know if I want this. Um, I, I, I want, I want to be in the fellowship. Like, I just want to go back to the fun times." You know. Mm. Then he started explaining how he was in another country and how amazing it was. And then when you start to ask more questions like, whoa, so what happened? Like, oh yeah, this happened. Oh yeah, that happened. I totally forgot about that, you know? And once again, that's how like my mind works. It remembers all the fun times, but it doesn't remember the dark times, you know? Um, you know, and I'll ask questions like that, speak to them about that. Um, you know, how are they in regards to work? How are they feeling internally? That brings us to the last question of 12 steps and 12 questions. What would you want your higher power to say to you, in, qu in quotation marks, at the pearly gates? I'd want him to say, or her to say, thank you for being a good agent and helping people, mm. you know. Um, this, this, this disease of addiction, I'll just end on this. I once looked at it as a curse. Why me, why me? Self-pity. That as well, yeah. And now I look at it as a gift. Mm. I never had no purpose in life until my daughter came and then I wasn't there for her. Yeah. And now because of the 12 steps and God, I have a purpose in life and that's to be there for my daughter, to be there for my family, to look after my mum who has dementia, who used to look after me when I was in active addiction and to more importantly, freely help a man as I have been helped and that's through the 12 steps. It's beautiful. Jason, thank you so much for, for coming over and for being my guest today on this episode of 12 Steps and 12 Questions. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your courage, for your honesty. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me.
Really enjoyed it. Really loved it. And I hope this can help someone. Thank you. Thank you. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. While this pod is based on the 12-step recovery program, it's not officially affiliated with any 12-step fellowship. 12 Steps and 12 Questions is not substance or behavior specific. It's fully self-supporting and not for profit. And you know this next bit. It's not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy and it neither endorses nor opposes any causes.